This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and director of communications at the ACLU of PA. On December 15th, Pennsylvania's Commonwealth Court will hear oral arguments in several lawsuits challenging the attempt by state Senate Republicans to subpoena the personally identifying information of all 9 million registered voters in the Commonwealth. Among the lawsuits is Commonwealth v. Dush, a case brought by the Department of State in which ACLUPA is representing three advocacy organizations and eight voters as interveners. Intervening is a legal process in which additional parties besides the plaintiffs and defendants can join a lawsuit because they will be directly impacted by its outcome. Make the Road Pennsylvania is one of our clients in the case, and for this episode, I'm joined by Diana Robinson, Civic Engagement Director of Make the Road Pennsylvania, along with Marion Schneider, Consulting Attorney for Elections and Voting Rights at the ACLU of PA. Over the course of our conversation, Diana and Marion explain what's at stake in this lawsuit, why it matters to voters, and what Pennsylvanians can do now to protect voting rights. This conversation was recorded on November 15th. Well, Marion and Diana, thank you both so much for joining me today. A chance to talk about this case, what it's all about, as well as talk a little bit broader about the, the state of things right now with voting rights and the state of democracy. And Marion, I want to start with you. Set the scene for us here. We're dealing with this case. It's Commonwealth v. Dush. Uh, it's this whole issue around the Senate Republican uh, caucus or, or, or the leadership trying to do a review of the election of both the 2020 general election and the 2021 primary. Election officials already conduct some types of reviews and checks on results. Can you just explain to us what that looks like in, in a way that lay people will understand? Sure. So thanks for having me, Andy. Uh, I I, I think that what people don't realize is that the day after the election and for the next 20 days after that, counties are really working hard to uh, canvas the votes. And what that means is they're checking everything. The official canvas is a time for counties to make sure that all everything came back and they reconcile the people who showed up at the polls with the ballots that they have. And, and they check all the absentee ballots and the right mail-in ballots. So that whole process is designed for the counties to check and double check. And they are given 20 days to do that. And there are gonna be things that will be discovered during that time. And that's perfectly normal. Uh, we see when you know people are human and mistakes get made, but the point is to detect those mistakes and then recover from them. And so um, the other thing that they do, in addition to that whole canvassing process, which is essentially a ballot reconciliation, right? Um, is they check that the computers counted the ballots properly. Now we have in statute, a recount, it's, called, it's called a statistical recount. And what it is, is a random sample of ballots, 2000 ballots or 2% of the ballots in a county. And they have to be hand, or they have to be counted in a way different than, uh, using a method different than in the, was used in the election. And all of the races on those ballots are recounted and make sure that they are consistent with the results. Um, in 2020, the Department of State conducted a pilot program of a risk limiting audit, which is another kind 
of a check on the to make sure that the computers counted the ballots properly. And it uses statistical methods to sample ballots. And it provides strong evidence that the reported results are correct. Or if the evidence isn't there, it leads to a full hand recount. We didn't have a full hand recount in 2020 because the uh, risk limiting audit demonstrated that the results were accurate. So those things happened. And uh, I think that what we're witnessing is this incredible lack of trust in the people who are charged with running elections. And they have jobs to do and they by and large want to do them as uh, correctly and as fairly as possible. And uh, this, the type of rhetoric that's swirling about uh, just, uh, it, it is undermining that effort. So what the Senate Intergovernmental Operations Committee is trying to do is quite different from everything you just described. They are, and, and they argue that as a co-equal branch government, they have a duty to conduct some review. Why is what they are doing so problematic? Well, there's a really uh, huge difference between uh, legislative oversight of the administrative action and what this process is. For, first off, the Intergovernmental Operations Committee does not oversee elections. It is not an, a committee that has expertise in election. That is the state government committee. So that's number one. Number two is the job of the legislature is to enact legislation. And they so they're a policymaking body. And what this subpoena that was served on September 15th is it's seeking the voter registration records and personally information so they can track back digital voters and investigate. Oh, you know, their their purpose has uh, bounced around and is they've said different things at different times about what their purpose is, but it's not a legislative purpose. It's not a policy making purpose. And um, that's why it's so um, it, it's, it ignores the process that's already in place under the election code to investigate these kinds of things. But I also want to point out is that the legislature conducted numerous hearings in both houses uh, to get uh, an after action review of the 2020 election. And the legislator created um, the election advisory board of the joint state government commission that met and produced a report in June, which they have not enacted those reports recommendations either. So, that those kinds of things that already happened are the kind of legislative oversight that is typical and what you would expect. What this is, is just keeping this narrative that something was wrong with the 2020 election and there were people who voted that shouldn't have voted. And let's not forget, there were numerous lawsuits after the 2020 election. There was every opportunity to raise these issues and to bring forth evidence and there was no evidence. So they, it, it's just keeping this very destructive narrative alive. And Diana, I feel like this is a good place to introduce Make the Road. So first, tell us a little bit about the organization. What's your mission and how do you all carry that out on a day-to-day -day basis? Uh, thank you, Andy. Uh, so I'm Diana Robinson. I'm the Civic Engagement Director at Make the Road Pennsylvania. Uh, so Make the Road Pennsylvania is a community organization um, that builds power for justice in the Latinx immigrant and working class communities of color. Um, and the way we do that is by engaging our communities in um, issues around voting, housing, 
Um, but one of the things we do most is do voter education um, and registering people to vote, uh, getting out the vote, helping to educate people about upcoming elections and also um, about candidates that are running or what positions are up for election. And this is something we just did in this past general election. And that's what a lot of our work is about, is educating voters about our election process. Oftentimes, communities of color aren't engaged in that way. They're a group that's used as a mobilization group towards the end of elections and not a persuasion group. Uh, that's often the rhetoric that's used when we're talking about uh, GOTV uh, or getting out the vote. So I think for us, what's really important is ensuring that people in our community are educated about what are issues that are important to our community and who, um, you know, what candidates will support this or in a more nonpartisan way, just knowing what's happening, what our elections are up for, for them to vote for. Um, and that's some of the ways that we engage our communities around these issues. Well, with that in mind, then why did you all feel, why did the organization feel like it was important to be part of this case? Yeah, we felt that it was very important to be part of this case because this continues to be a distraction from real issues that are affecting people now in 2021. You know, it's no longer 2020. The election happened. It was found to be a valid and fair election and that we have to move on and that our legislators have a responsibility to address the issues that our communities are facing right now in 2021. Um, housing issues, not being able to pay their rent, having issues accessing transportation, dealing with climate crisis issues like massive flooding and things like that. Uh, so we thought it was really important to be involved in this um, litigation or to be involved in this case because we need to bring it back to what is impacting people right now. And our legislators have a responsibility to answer to their constituents and you know, not be dealing with things from 2020 and be dealing with the real issues that we're facing right now in 2021. And Make the Road is one of three advocacy organizations uh, that is an intervener in this case, along with Common Cause PA and League of Women Voters of PA, uh, along with some individual voters. And, and Marion, in that case, the defendants, the Senate Republicans, are making some novel arguments as it relates to privacy rights. Um, tell us a little bit about those arguments and what the impact would be on privacy rights if the court buys it. Well, I, those are really important to talk about. I just want to take a step back and remind people what the issues are in this litigation. So there was a legislative subpoena that was issued on September 15th. And in that subpoena, the intergovernmental offer, it was served only against the Secretary of State. And they saw voter registration records of all registered voters that were on the rolls as of um, after the 2020 election and after the 2021 primary, but the voter registration records plus the driver's license number and the last four digits of their social security number. And that is why um, ACLU um, and our partner organizations, clients got involved because that kind of um, transfer of personal information is an invasion of privacy, especially if it were to be turned over to the Senate caucus and the Intergovernmental Operations Committee, which is not an, a, an entity that is used to handling large amounts of data and large amounts of sensitive data. So what the, so the, the core issue and the only issue that we are asserting in the case you know, recognizing that there's no legitimate legislative purpose as we discussed. But the core issue is that 
Pennsylvanians have a constitutional right to privacy and a disclosure of this type cannot be done unless the government demonstrates that it has a compelling interest and, and needs the information and can't get it anywhere else and that it's narrowly, narrowly tailored to meet this compelling interest. They've done none of that. They haven't even come close. So I, I just wanted to set the stage before we talk about the novel arguments because the, the one argument that is very concerning is that they're saying that, well, the legislature is part of state government and the executive branch is part of state government. So this is just a transfer among co-equal branches of government and therefore there's no privacy right. And that is just a, a clearly a misunderstanding of what constitutes an invasion of privacy. And it misses the point that it's the disclosure and the threatened disclosure of personal information that has to be um, demonstrated to be necessary or uh, that they have to have a compelling interest in order to do that disclosure. And so we've kind of framed their argument as a single entity theory. And it, it really just ignores one of the fundamental concepts of our Republican, or our, and I'll say the Republic system of government of three co-equal branches, the judiciary, the legislative branch, and the executive branch. Just because the executive branch has some personal information doesn't mean the legislature gets to, gets to see it or gets to have it. And especially when they're not even uh, set up or have the capacity to handle it in a secure fashion. So, so that argument is really, there's no case law that supports that argument. The facts don't support that argument. Uh, otherwise, why why do the legislators all have different counsel than the executive branch? Um, you know, it's it's just uh, uh, either just just either fundamentally does not understand our constitutional system of government or is staggeringly ignorant. Take your pick. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Marion, uh, you make really good points around um, the security issues and fear around um, this sensitive information uh, being at risk uh, to be used in a way that wouldn't be good for, for voters. Um, you know, we find already um, people have so we face such challenges, even registering people to vote in our communities because they have to provide the last four digits of their social security number. And also because they have to provide their driver's license number or one or the other. And already that's such a challenge because people are so fearful of their information being stolen because we live in a time where identity theft and um, fraud is, is so prevalent. So I think this adds another layer to that. People are already distrustful of sharing their information and I think this will be a burden to organizations like mine who will then have to shift resources to do more education work within our communities to say, you know, this could happen um, if the, your information is found to be breached. These are the steps you need to take to ensure you secure your information. Um, so we, we shouldn't uh, have to be doing that. We should just be doing the work that we already are doing, registering voters, educating voters about the election process. Um, and, you know, we've seen throughout um, state government around Pennsylvania that oftentimes there's mistakes that happen 
Um, you know, just recently in Berks County, they sent out erroneous information or false information to voters about when to return their mail-in ballots. So our communities are already very distrustful of information they're receiving and adding another layer where they feel they are vulnerable or their information is at risk is going to make it even harder for them to participate in, in this process. And we should but be clear. Are, oh, go ahead, Mary. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that those are really good points that Diane is making because one of the other arguments that the um, GOP caucus is making is that by registering to vote, which is a necessary predicate to exercising the right to vote, that voters waive their constitutional privacy. In other words, in order to exercise one constitutional right, they give up their other constitutional right. And that's not, you, you don't do that. You shouldn't have to do that in order, it's not a trade-off like that. And that could be a very dangerous precedent because think of other constitutional, competing constitutional rights uh, or um, not competing necessarily, but complementary constitutional rights. We wouldn't want to say that just because you in, have to turn over certain information that you waive your constitutional right to privacy to, uh, to engage. And a related follow-up, uh, we should be clear, uh, I'm sure any voter listening to this gets tons of mail or people at their door at every election. So there is some information that is publicly available, but what they're trying to do here is well beyond what is available um, to the public and is from someone's voter registration. Right. The driver's license and last four of the social are not permitted to be disclosed. And what they're asking for Nine million of those records neatly packaged for somebody to, if somebody were to gain access to those, they would have an enormous ability to disrupt somebody's financial arrangements. There, um, there have been documented instances during the pandemic that people have used identity theft to apply for benefits falsely. Um, it's well documented that the IRS has problems with people filing false tax returns and seeking refunds. All of those things are a possibility if this information were turned over um, to, uh, to the committee who is not equipped to deal with it in a secure way. Um, Diana, there's obviously a legal process going on here that will play itself out, but I know you're involved in civic engagement. What kinds of actions are you encouraging people to take right now regarding voting rights, whether it's related to this case or even above and beyond that? Yeah, we're always uh, telling uh, voters to be aware in their polling sites if they see any issues that come up when they're voting to report them. Um, you know, we ourselves train our members to be um, at poll sites to help identify any issues, like if there's long lines or if uh, materials aren't available in, a, in another language when they should be. Um, for us, something that we've been advocating for uh, at Make the Road is uh, language access, ensuring that um, things are accessible in multiple languages, knowing that um, the citizens of these countries are not only English speaking. Um, and I think that's something important um, for all counties in the state of Pennsylvania to, to understand, but um, primarily in the counties where there are dominant non-English speaking communities. 
Um, Because again, this is a barrier to voting. Um, Also something that we've been working with election administrators around the state um, is doing cultural awareness training with their own poll workers and um, staff, um, because oftentimes people go to vote and it's not a good experience and they don't want to do it again because it could be uh, humiliating. It could be a discouraging experience. And so we don't want that to happen, especially for people who are voting for the first time. We want it to be a joyous experience. We want them to want to go back and vote. Um, so we have a lot of work to do to ensure that um, the process is a lot more welcoming of new citizens or of people who've been citizens for many years, but just English is not their first language. Uh, so how do we ensure that that we're doing that? Um, and, you know, just in allyship and, and being a, a, a upstander, be, you know, if you witness something when you're at a polling site, you should report it. Um, it's important that people are um, bringing to light the issues that come up so we can improve them and make them better. Um, and I think for us, one of the things we're, we're most vigilant around and, and something we have been discussing a lot more about um, is a, a potentially voter ID and, and what that means for our communities. Um, and it can mean a lot of different things for a lot of different communities, but how do we ensure that it's not disenfranchising and how do we ensure that it doesn't create another barrier uh, for people to vote? Well, that's a good segue to another question I wanted to ask both of you, uh, getting a, a little bit away from this case, although it could be related. I'll let you determine that. But what do you think are the biggest threats to democracy right now in the United States is, and in Pennsylvania, too? Um, is it reviews like like the what's going on here with the Senate Republicans? Are there other problems lurking out there uh, that you're concerned about? Marion, why don't you start? Well, I, I think that this the, the case that we're involved in and the legislative subpoena is an outgrowth of a larger uh, false narrative and that there uh, the big lies it's been called or just that there was uh, that the winner of the 20 of the, the president Biden did not win the 2020 election. And I think that that narrative only gets legs or gains traction when the preferred candidate doesn't win. But when the preferred candidate does win, everything's fine. Um, So, uh, but I think that what's, I think that there's there's a couple of things. You know, computers are used in elections. They have a certain set of risks and vulnerabilities. We know how to deal with them. We have paper ballots so that we can check the computers. But I think what's very damaging is that the narrative is um, saying that the universe of ballots is incorrect. And therefore it doesn't matter whether the computers counted them right, that universe is incorrect. And that's the falsehood that is, first of all, it's false because we have so many checks and balances along the way. We have the, the voters authenticity is checked numerous ways. And, and Diana was just talking about voter ID. Guess what? Pennsylvania has an ID requirement right now. <laughs> um, we have an ID requirement for mail-in ballots. We have an ID requirement for first-time voters. And the, the counties are checking everything um, related to voter registration in advance. So um, I think that the false narrative that there's something wrong with that universe means that you can't trust any election result. And if you don't trust any election result, then you don't then then you're not consenting to the to to being governed by the leaders who won the election. 
And that is what is so terribly, terribly dangerous about this narrative. And we need our elected officials to be, be brave and condemn it for what it is, a falsehood undermining our republic. Yeah, to add to that, um, I would say like we have to recognize that there is an implicit bias that's attached to all these narratives um, and these ideas of fraud and stolen elections and things like that, that there is an implicit bias that is very strong and rooted in white supremacy. Um, we have to be cognizant of that. And that's a real thing that we have to, to address. Um, and I think that, um, you know, a threat to democracy is that we saw how mail-in voting drop boxes expanded and made more accessible voting for a lot of people who aren't, um, you know, have difficult work schedules or have childcare issues where the poll site locations just didn't work the times. So how do we continue to ensure that we expand voting rights and we're not restricting them? Um, uh, voting by mail has really helped to ensure that a lot more people are able to vote and they're not restricted by their work schedules or childcare issues. Um, so I think for us, Moving forward, that's one of the things that we're going to be advocating the most for is that we expand voting rights around the country through uh, federal legislation, but also in the state of Pennsylvania, ensuring that what was um, uh, what was accomplished in Act 77 can continue and that um, we continue to expand on that with same day voter registration and things like that. Um, because I think that is where we're going to see continue to build um, access and equity in voting for, for all Americans. So Diane, I think oh, that, go ahead, Mary. I was just going to follow up on what Diana said, because she's absolutely right. That what was not only the partisan ballot reviews, but what we're seeing across the country is a state of legislation that is anti-voter and is meant to restrict voting access. And it is targeted. It is targeted to black and brown voters for sure. And um, we I think it's important to people for to people, people need to name it for what it is. And all the denials really it 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 is directed towards that. And the reason that it's so prevalent now goes directly to the evisceration of the Voting Rights Act under Shelby County versus Holder, where the pre-clearance provisions were eviscerated. And now these these counties with historical uh, historical uh, racial discrimination are a, have more reign, have more free reign to do what they want to do because there's no enforcement against them. Yeah, and Diana, I appreciate you making the point about bias, and then Mary, in your follow up, um, the 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 examples are numerous, but uh, what immediately comes to mind was the um, attacks on voting in Detroit and Philadelphia. It's that's, I mean, that's that is explicit um, language uh, aimed at a particular uh, population of folks in two key swing states in 2020. Um, Diana, if folks want to learn more about Make the Road Pennsylvania, um, where can they go? Yeah, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, Twitter, Make the Road PA is our Twitter handle. On uh, Facebook, you can look us up as Make the Road Pennsylvania. Uh, you could also visit our website, maketheroadpa.org. Um, and you can follow us and um, we love the support and we hope to uh, see you all out at an action supporting and defending voter rights. 
Well, thank you both for the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, December 15th is oral argument. There will be lots and lots of lawyers there that day because this is actually multiple cases consolidated into one. Um, so that's the next big moment on the calendar, but appreciate all the work that uh, both of you are doing. Thank you for having me, Andy. Thanks, Andy. That's Diana Robinson from Make the Road, Pennsylvania, and Marion Schneider from the ACLU of PA. Learn more about this case by visiting aclupa.org slash dush. That's aclupa.org slash D-U-S-H. Did you know that select episodes of Speaking Freely are available on our YouTube channel? Visit our channel for podcast episodes and other video content about civil liberties at youtube.com slash ACLUPA or on the YouTube app with the handle ACLUPA. And that brings episode 68 to a close. The audio editor of Speaking Freely is Freddie Foulet, and the video editor is Cambria Lee. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be healthy and be free.